Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of John and the 15th chapter. We're on the road to Bethany, the couple miles that it was from Jerusalem back to the Mount of Olives, where there was the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus would enter before he was arrested there and taken to a trial, a mockery of a trial, and then crucified. John 15, I hope that my constant reminders to you about these chapters, starting with 13 through 17, the five chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, those five being in the last few hours of our Lord's life, help you appreciate the second half of the Gospel of John. And then chapter 18, we find him being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we have enough hints given to us in chapter 13, and then the last verse of chapter 14, then the first verse of chapter 18 that tell us that's exactly what's happened here. So we're on the road. And we started this chapter with the metaphor that Jesus gave of a vine and its branches, that they were dependent upon him for sustaining spiritual strength to be able to bear fruit. But we're moving to a new section now. I want you to look at that 15th chapter, and I believe that John 15 is nearly a favorite chapter of some of you, and I want you to be able to see its pieces. The first eight verses are his metaphorical description of a vine and its branches, and it covers the first eight verses, which we did the last couple Sundays. Then, verses 9 through 17, which you were to read last evening, cover love, that love is the bond between heaven and earth, between God and himself, Jesus speaking, and the apostles, and the bond between the apostles among themselves. And so I wrote you yesterday that love is the glue, because glue is a bonding agent that keeps men together, keeps churches together when it's practiced properly. It's not just a feeling It's not something you can do at home. It's something that you do with brethren. You forgive them their offenses. You make them more important than you are. And you invest in them time, effort, emotion, money to make them better in the sight of the Lord. And so that is the the bond that is in verses 9 through 17. It's a very real section. The distinction between verses 8 and 9 is modest but it's still there. The distinction between 17 and 18 is significant as the Lord Jesus Christ goes to a new topic in verse 18, and that's persecution and hatred. I would say that's the opposite of love. And the world is the opposite of the other apostles. So it's very different. There are three very real sections. And then the last two verses are his promise repeated from chapter 14 and to be elaborated on in chapter 16 of the Holy Ghost, to take care of them as his personal comforter with them. I go over those sections again for you to be able to take a chapter like this, break it down into its pieces, and appreciate its individual lessons. So now we have a lesson on love. Now you would think, with all the preaching that we do in this church about love, that we've overstressed the point. No way. No way have we overstressed the point. Jesus stressed the point. 
His apostles stressed the point. He is going to say in verse 12, this is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Five verses later in verse 17, he's going to say, these things I command you, that ye love one another. And this is not new material. Because he had already said these things while sitting at the table in the upper room in chapter 13. It's very important to him. And for anyone that has tried to manage a group of people and have them be effective and at peace and unified in the way the Bible wants them effective and at peace and unified, it takes a lot of preaching about love and a lot of emphasis. Faith is easy. The devils have faith. Anyone can have faith. Faith doesn't mean much of anything. Lots of believers are going to hell. I know that's hard for some of you to believe because you were taught by those that have never count, never thought about love. The only love they know is John 3.16 and they don't understand it there because the objects of the love of John 3.16 in their theology, most of them are in hell, being tormented by the love of that God, which is absolutely absurd. But they always want to talk, all you've got to do is believe. All you've got to do is believe, write down the date that you believed and you're on your way to heaven. Anyone can believe in that sense. And so it's not the real proof of eternal life. It's only the starting evidence that there might be eternal life. Then you've got to add things to your faith. And when you add things to your faith, you end up with the top two stones being brotherly kindness and charity. And so there's an emphasis on love. Devils don't love. And while anybody can be convinced to believe anything, um, if we were to go and take a survey even today, we'd find that 95% of the residents of this county are very good Christians, and they certainly believe in Jesus Christ. But when you ask a person to change their lives and give up selfishness, give up their time, give up their ridiculous little schedule that they've made for their lives, give up their emotionally bankrupt life in order to show emotion, take time, make effort, spend money for others, you'll find out that they don't love and that they're probably not saved. Because that's the measure. That is why when we're really dealing with the assurance of eternal life in 1 John, it's about love. Faith is just barely mentioned, and it always leads to more about love. And I I just want to say that before we get into this section, because when we say love is the greatest, we're saying that based on Bible density. Bible density is the amount of time and the stress put on a particular point. And... Our love as an evidence of eternal life and as proof of God's grace in our lives is best shown by love of others. Because that is not what we are by nature. And it is not what devils are by nature. And it is not what devils are today. Devils believe and they tremble. They, They have a very good response to preaching. Because they know it's true. And they will come and worship the Son of God. But they will not practice love because he was a from a murderer from the beginning. Yep. It is such a contrast 
And it is certainly made as a contrast in 1 John, that first epistle, chapters 3 and 4. Well, there's the four sections of John 15. So right now we have in front of us verses 9 through 17, and I read those to you. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. Amen and amen. amen. We may have the time, and we may not have the time, to go to Matthew chapter 20 and see the apostles having infighting among themselves as to who was going to be the greatest of the twelve. And so two of them had, had enough conversations with their mommy that their mommy came to Jesus and asked that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, could sit on the left and right hands of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. And so he had an appropriate answer for them, and they were certainly going to drink of his cup to some point, and they were going to be baptized with his baptism to a point, not quite like he was, but uh, it wasn't for his to give, it was for the fathers to give to those that deserved it. But that, it, that kind of infighting, and you know when that was known, and it wasn't done in private, that was done openly because the other apostles knew about it, and there was a great deal of anger among them, for James and John getting their mommy to go to bat for them in a matter as important as sitting on the left and right hand of God. And so that's when Jesus taught that the greatest in his kingdom are servants. How much are you a servant? Are you part of our entitled age? And so you're entitled to go home and mind your own little life that doesn't matter? Or are you a servant? How hard do you work at being a servant? Because the greatest in Christ's kingdom are servants. They go and do things for others, lowly things. They don't make money from them. They lose time. It costs them emotion. It wears them out. It's frustrating. It can be discouraging. But they do it, and they keep doing it. Because that's real love, and that's greatness in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And he said, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, not to be served, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. See, that's Matthew 20, but it's just like this passage because it's going to bring up the example of laying down his life for others. Serving is costly. It costs. 
It costs you your little schedule. No one in heaven or earth cares about your schedule. God wants us to be servants. It costs us emotion. We have to dig up. We have to enlarge our hearts and find affection for someone that we may not naturally, ordinarily, be affectionate toward. So we stir it up. And the Bible calls it enlarging our hearts. The Bible says the opposite is to have a straightened heart. That means to have your heart in a straitjacket. It's all bound up with straps, and you can't get and it can't get loose. It's restricted. And the Lord's going to teach these apostles they can't be like that. If they were like that, if they went their separate ways like some of you do, there would be no church in the earth. They needed each other. They needed to help each other. They needed to lay down their lives for each other. And they needed to lay down their lives for others. Like the Apostle Paul did for the church at Corinth and many other churches. Or you would have never heard the gospel. Because Paul practiced love like we should. Paul practiced love like Jesus did. Paul practiced love like Jesus taught him. And we want to learn that. God in grace has taught us to love in our hearts. And God in gracious providence has led us by his scriptures to emphasize love on an increasing basis over the last 38 years because we weren't taught it. It was flat out ignored. A church is not a seminary class. It's not even close to a seminary class. And yet I've seen those churches. And we want to have true doctrine, but we want to have love overall. And we want our doctrine to be expressed and shown in love. And so we have the Lord here. He's on the road. He's hours from being arrested or minutes from being arrested. However you want to look at it, it's very brief. And what he has to give his apostles is what he gives us by those apostles in their epistles to us. And that is the love. So we're at verse 9. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. This is the second section of the chapter and stresses the importance of love. We can summarize these first three big sections as fruitfulness, fellowship, patience. If you look at the three sections, one through eight, fruitfulness. Nine through 17, fellowship. Because fellowship is a bond and unity of peace and love. That's what fellowship is. And so he was teaching them fellowship. And then in the third section, it's patience to be able to cheerfully endure the hateful persecution that was going to come their way. And when we look at those three sections, we can see the means for obtaining fruitfulness, fellowship, and patience. And that is abiding in Christ, obeying with love Christ, and enduring. Jesus explained these things to them. And so here we come to this first verse, and it says, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. The vine branch metaphor is over. How did God the Father love the Lord Jesus Christ? Deeply, gloriously, perfectly. We, we cannot aspire to it in the fullest dimensions of the love the Father had for the Son, but it was great. This is my beloved Son. He thundered from heaven on several occasions in whom I am well pleased. 
The sun in darkness hid its glories when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And there was a break in the fellowship between the Father and the Son. The love was fantastic. And yet, as far as the human nature of Jesus Christ could love his apostles, he did in a love like the Father had had toward him. And that's what we have here. Let me point out something that needs to be said. God does not love unconditionally. There is no such thing as unconditional love. You can try to define it. You can play games with love. But God doesn't love unconditionally. God doesn't love his own son unconditionally. God loves his son Jesus Christ because he was absolutely holy and impeccable in his nature. And he loves you only because you have been made acceptable to his love in the beloved. When you're in the beloved, you're in the one well-loved by the Father, and that's how he loves us. It's impossible to love unconditionally. What are you loving if you're loving unconditionally? Their DNA? The 70% of their body weight that's water. The 30% of their body weight that is flesh and bone? What are you loving? Well, you're loving me. What is you? Tell me about you. Can you put it on the table for me to look at it and put it in a scale so I can weigh it? What is you? Do you know what you is? It's what you does. That's what you is. There isn't anything else but what you does. Anyway, do you know why the Father loves us? Because of what Jesus did. Do you know why he forgives us? Because you're lovable? Because you're forgivable? Not a chance on either point. He forgives you because of Jesus Christ paying for your sins on the cross. There is no such thing as unconditional love. No one has ever defined it. No one is capable of defining it. It's a play on games, and it's for this reason. I do not care about keeping any rules. I do not care about loving you. I do not care about doing right. But I expect to be loved anyway because I'm self, I'm special. That's what unconditional love is. I expect you to love me regardless of what I do. That's where it comes from. It's the most selfish, narcissistic concept of relating to other people possible. Don't play games with me with phileo and agape from a New Testament. They're synonyms. There is no difference. Jesus used them as synonyms. And love still stands upon the merits of someone. Either they themselves, and that's in this passage, or the one who died for them and made us lovable. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. love. Now, can you be separated from that love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Absolutely not. No matter what I do, no matter what you do, because of what he did for you, it is still conditional. You say, but it sounds sort of unconditional to me. 
If you want to talk about it that way, he didn't die for you. Okay? If you want to talk about it that way, that I can just live any way I want and it doesn't matter, then you're not truly expressing the effect of Jesus Christ's death for us. Because when he died on the cross, he paid for our sins. And if he paid for our sins and you appreciate that, then you don't want to commit those sins that he had to die for. It should change your life. Grace changes lives. And we want it to change our lives. I don't want to take any more time on that point. If you want to read a little bit about it, it's a document on our website um, about unconditional love being one more lie about love. There's self-love, that's a lie. And there's unconditional love, that's a lie. They're both lies of the modern generation in particular. And we want to emphasize God's love for us and our love for others. The Bible doesn't say for you to worry about getting loved. The Bible tells you to worry about loving the way you're supposed to. As soon as you start worrying about being loved, it's because you don't know how to love, don't want to love, or have some serious spiritual internal problem. Because giving is the greatest love, and you're, there's a greater blessing in giving love than receiving love. We want to we practice that. And the Lord's got these 11 men with him. He's got a few minutes with them. And they've already been arguing and fighting, as Matthew 20, as I mentioned, tells us about them. And he wants, them to, he wants to correct that in them. They would need to love each other to conquer their own sinful ambition and envy. Right. What if one of them had more success? Where were the other apostles on the day of Pentecost? Peter was the one that lifted up his voice. Peter was the one that preached that fantastic sermon. Couldn't the other ten have been jealous? Wouldn't they have been envious? Not if they love one another. Right. Love doesn't have any room for envy. Right. Love gets all excited when someone else gets blessed. Right. Love gets more excited about someone else being blessed than if the blessing were on themselves. Right. You say, is that possible? By the grace of God, it's possible. Yeah. Not only is it possible, it's probable. Not only is it probable, it's expected if the grace of God is in a life. It is more pleasure to know that you're having pleasure than if I were having pleasure. And you should say, it is more pleasure to me to know you're having pleasure than if I were having the pleasure. Right. And the apostles, we don't see any envy in them. Now, we see a little problem with Barnabas and Paul about a nephew of Barnabas when we get over there to Acts chapter 14. But uh, for the most part, these 11, Barnabas wasn't one of the 11, but he was an apostle. These 11 got along just well. And we thank the Lord for the lesson that we have right here. Amen. God does not love emotionally like men limited in the flesh, for he's not a man. God can't repent, though men repent. God can't change, though men change. God doesn't love emotionally. He's not subject to the vagaries, the changes, the vicissitudes, the weakness, the pitifulness of our love. He loves constantly by character and moral definition of the word rather than the feelings of lust. And so we want to just separate ourselves and see that love coming down out of heaven from the Father upon the Son and the Son's love toward the apostles. It was selfless love. It was deep love. It was abiding love. It had a purpose love. It didn't change love. The love that Jesus had for his apostles. And he said, Continue ye in my love. Now this brings us to an interesting interpretational issue right here. And I love these in the Bible, and I hope you love them with me. As the Father hath loved me, 
so have I loved you. God loved Jesus deeply, benevolently, effectively, personally, unashamedly, unchangingly. Jesus loved his apostles deeply, benevolently, effectively, personally, unashamedly, unchangingly. Continue ye in my love. Continue ye in my love. Does that mean continue loving me? Or continue in a condition of me loving you? Continue in the enjoyment and pleasure of being the object of my love. Which one is it? What is our number one rule of interpretation in a place like this? Context. Context is our master in a place like this. Continue ye in my love. This takes us to a grammatical issue that was going to be dealt with Wednesday night at the men's meeting, but we ran out of time. We ran out of time long before the study I was going to give you on genitive case of nouns as it's shown in the Bible. Look back a few chapters to John 6 and let me, <coughs> let me exercise your minds for just a moment. John chapter 6, the genitive case of a noun, a noun can be in possession of something. And that's the genitive case, or it's called the possessive case, because it possesses something. And you've got to make a decision. Is, is the noun the object of the action, or is it the actor of the action? Is it the subject of the action by it being the one acting, or is it the object of the action by being the one acted upon? And so it's objective genitive or subjective genitive, Determining if it's acting or being acted upon. Watch this. John 6 and verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, John 6, 29, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. This is the work of God. That little phrase, the work of God. Who's working? Now the first time that a person hears about sovereign grace or monergism, they see a verse like this and they're jumping. They're jumping because it's the work of God. God has to work in us to believe. Well, that may be true. You certainly can't prove it from this verse. Look at the verse. This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Who's working? Is God working? Or do we work what God wants us to work? We're the ones working. That's the, that's the answer. Because the context is this, verse 28. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? What should we do to do those things that are pleasing to God? Here's what you can do that's pleasing to God. Believe on him whom he hath sent. It's us believing. It's us working, not God. But see, you can't tell by the... Four, this is those that love primary definitions and those that love grammar... The grammar can't be known without the context. Context determines grammar so many, many times. The love of God, those, the, works, the work of God, those four words do not by themselves prove anything. You say, but it's a prepositional phrase, the love of God. That has to be God's love. Oh, no, it does not. Or the, works of, the work of God. No, it does not. There's many of these in the Bible. That's why with the faith of Christ, you better be very careful by context. The four words, the faith of Christ, does not prove that it's Jesus Christ's faith. Right. 
Try James 2, 1 on for size sometime. Look at Luke eleven forty two. Luke eleven forty two. This is Bible study right now. When you read the Bible and you find a prepositional phrase, a genitive phrase, a possessive phrase, who's acting? The object of the preposition, is it the one acting or the one being acted upon? Luke eleven forty two. Woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass over judgment and the love of God. The love of God. Is it God's love of the Pharisees? Or is it the Pharisees' love of God? The love of God. What did they pass over? Were they not preaching enough about the love of God? Or had they stopped loving God like they should have? That's the issue. Because Jesus, I didn't read the whole verse because it would have said too much. The rest of the verse is, These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. You should have done your tithes, but you should have also loved God. And so the love of God is their love of God, their love for God. They were the ones loving God. Do you see that? But if you just look at the four words, the love of God. We may sing a song in the second service, 486 in the Burgundy, which is called the love of God. When we sing that song, will it be our love of God or God's love of us? God's love of us. I got to give you one more. Just too excited about it to hold it back. Daniel chapter 11, subjective genitive. Yes. No, that's objective genitive in Luke 11:42. Daniel chapter 11 because the object of the preposition is the object of the action. And that's where the words come from, subjective genitive or objective genitive. The object of the preposition God in this case is the one being acted upon. He's the one being loved in Luke 11:42. And in John 6 and verse 29, it was also objective genitive because it was our work toward God, not his work in us. This is way off the subject, but I just want to share this with you. Daniel chapter 11. The hardest verse in Daniel is Daniel chapter 11 and verse 36. Daniel chapter 11 is very easy. You're told a starting point. You're told an ending point. If you read the whole last vision of Daniel, which is Daniel chapters 10 through 12. The last three chapters are a vision about the kings of the north, the kings of the south, and all that. We understand that. I don't even want to even maybe say it. But I want you to look at Daniel chapter 11 and verse 37. And this is what the whole world would get out of this verse today in conservative so-called Bible-believing churches. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. They would tell you that Daniel chapter 11 and verse 37 is the Antichrist, and he is an asexual android. Yep. Asexual android. Because it says, neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women. He's not going to have any desire for women. He's going to be an asexual android. Is the desire of women... Objective genitive or subjective genitive? Are the women the object of the desire or are the women the subject of the desire? Subject. What is the desire of women? Children. These women love their children and he would not regard women's love of children because he killed all the babies around Bethlehem because this is Herod the Great. 
which puts him between in the Greek and under the Greek and Roman Empire, Persian and Roman Empires, Greek and Roman Empires, which we have in this chapter. Let's get back to uh, John 15. Uh, when you find a prepositional phrase like the love of God, you better be sure you know what it's talking about. It could be God's love of you or your love of God. Daniel 11.37 is so easy. You're told an end point, and the end point of that last prophecy of Daniel is the scattering of the Jewish nation. When did that take place? 70 A.D. The starting point are the kings of the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, that Daniel was under, which it starts with in Daniel chapter 10. And so you know you've got it confined as a prophecy, and it just moves from major king to major king until it gets to Herod the Great. Anyway, he's not an asexual android. At the time, he had ten wives. That is not an asexual android. That is a man that didn't care about children, and so the, the children were killed in Judea. John chapter 15. And so we're looking at this last part of the verse 9, continue ye in my love. We choose for several reasons that Jesus exhorted the eleven to retain his love for them, to stay in the enjoyment and the conditions for maximizing his love of them. Let me give you a few reasons very quickly. Jesus here taught the eleven that right conduct would keep his loving favor on them. Read the, the first compound clause of the verse. Why switch and reverse to our love? It's God loving Jesus. It's Jesus loving us. Why reverse to our love? Read the next verse. For it rather clearly explains the concept. Obey me for my love. John 15 and verse 10. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. That is the explanation for the words, continue ye in my love, from verse 9. Read the 12th verse. For he clearly expresses, he, he knew how to clearly express their love for him down there in verse 12. Verse 12 is not a repetition of verse 9. Verse 12 is not a repetition of verse 10. He knows how to say how to love one another. But he said, continue in my love. He said, it's my love. Continue in my love. Read the 14th verse, for it clearly explains the concept, obedience for his friendship. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you, is what it says there in verse 14. But there's a condition upon friendship. As the elect of God, there's no condition except God's condition of grace. But in personal, practical relationship, there's a condition. If you're not keeping God's commandments, you're not his practical friend, and he will not treat you like a practical friend. He can withdraw from you and chasten you and turn you over to your enemies, which isn't very friendly, because it's not intended to be friendly. It's intended to correct you. Now, here's the real key. It's the context. What did we learn in chapter 14? Did we learn anything in chapter 14 in verses 21 and 23? He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me this way shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. By obedience, we continue in the love of God and the love of Jesus Christ toward us. That was a, that was a relatively new concept 
given in John's gospel in chapter 14. But in case you missed it in verse 21, Jesus repeated it in verse 23. If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Well, if you want to abide in the situation of God making his abode with you, then keep his commandments and abide in his love. Be his friend by keeping his commandments, and he will continue to treat you the way that he had treated these 11 for three and a half years. They could continue right going forward with Jesus being their comforter. I will not leave you comfortless. I'll come to you. If you want to keep up our relationship, continue in my love. As the fathers loved me, I've loved you. I'm going to keep on loving you, and I'm going to manifest even more of that love to you if you'll keep obeying me. When Jesus wants to tell them to love him, he knows how to say it. But here he says, continue in my love. And we've been shown in the context that, especially John 14, that it was his love of them. The great theme in John's gospel and in his epistle is God's love. Christ's love of us was the great apostolic motive. For we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead, and they which live should henceforth not live unto themselves, but unto him who loved them and gave himself for them. That's the great apostolic motive that we're taught in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God's love of us is incredible grace that exceeds ours of God. The great love that Paul wanted the Ephesian church to know was Christ's love for them. And it's right here. How do we continue in that favorable manifestation of Jesus Christ and God the Father abiding with us, dwelling with us, and manifesting their love to us? By obeying God's commandments and being full of the Holy Ghost. Because as soon as you break God's commandments, the Holy Ghost is hindered in your life and you don't know the love of God. And it is the love of God through us, in us, and to us that motivates men. Fellowship with God is conditional. Go to 1 John chapter 1 and find out all about it. But we're not going to turn there. But when you go there, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. But if we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. There's no fellowship there. We cost us our fellowship. And so when we look at verses 9 and 10 here in John 15... This is keeping God's commandments, staying in the vine, abiding in Christ, obeying him, loving him by keeping his commandments. And that is how we continue in Christ's love. John 15, verse 9. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. We've had a great relationship, men. The Father loves me as his son. I have loved you. Continue ye in my love. Stay in that relationship we have. This is comfort. This whole section, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, is all about comforting these 11 to be able to fulfill their offices as apostles. And to fulfill their offices as apostles, the most comforting thing that could be given them is the love of God and the love of Christ for them. Just stay there. You can keep on having the relationship we've had. I'm calling you friends, but keep my commandments so you can stay my friends. You're my friends if you keep my commandments. See, most people don't know the God of the Bible. Did you know that, is God the Holy Spirit the comforter? Is God the Holy Spirit the comforter? Does Isaiah 63 and verse 10 tell us that the Holy Spirit can be our enemy? 
Does it say that? It says that. On what grounds would the Holy Spirit become our enemy? The Holy Spirit is inside you. Do you know what can happen to your insides? And I don't mean your digestive tract. When the Holy Spirit's your enemy? Jesus wasn't threatening these men. I want you to love me. He was promising them what good things they would enjoy by loving him and keeping his commandments. Continue ye in my love. I've loved you like the Father's loved me. We've had a great relationship. Let's continue to enjoy that relationship as we go forward. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. So the last part of verse 9 is explained with the first half of verse 10. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Was that Jesus loving God? Or was that Jesus keeping God's commandments to abide his favored, well-pleased son? This is my beloved son. This is the son I love, in whom I am well-pleased. Why was God the Father well-pleased with Jesus? Because Jesus kept his Father's commandments and did everything that was pleasing in his sight. I hope you can see it in verse 10 if you can't see it in verse 9. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I've kept my relationship up with my Father by keeping his commandments. You keep your relationship up with me by keeping my commandments, and the love from God to me, from me to you, will continue. Amen. You say, well, I wish it was a little more apparent. I'm glad the Bible is written just the way it is. So that people can get confused here because they don't understand subjective genitive, objective genitive. They can't figure out whose love's being talked about. And they miss what was in John 14, verses 21 and 23. They forget everything the New Testament says, that the great motivating factor is God's love for us that moved men. And it's the love that Paul prayed for the Holy Spirit to teach the the church at Ephesus. If you go read the book of Ephesians, it doesn't say, I'm praying for the Holy Spirit that you'll love God more. It's not in there. From chapter 1 to chapter 6, it is, I'm praying for the Holy Spirit upon you so that you will know God better and that you will know Christ's love for you better until you are filled with all the fullness of God. Now, when you're filled with all the fullness of God, truly knowing the full dimensions of Jesus Christ's love for you, what will you be doing? You'll be loving him back. Verse 11. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. What What really brings us joy? It's God's love for us. It's not our love for God. Our love for God is fallible. Our love for God never reaches as high as it should. That's not what brings us joy. What brings us joy is God's love for us. All This conversation as they're walking along the road from Jerusalem to Bethany is to comfort them and encourage them and to tell them what God has done for them and that they can survive this ordeal of having him taken away and they can be great apostles. These things have I spoken unto you that for two reasons that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. So we've got two joys in verse 11, don't we? We have my joy, Jesus speaking, and we have your joy about the apostles. 
that my joy might remain in you. Now we've already established, primarily from chapter 14, that God and Christ are acting. They're the ones coming, dwelling, manifesting love, and showing love to the apostles. Chapter 14 and verse 27, Jesus said, My peace I give unto you. What was Jesus' peace? It was his peace. How did Jesus have peace? By the Holy Spirit. He gave them the comforter that would give them the kind of peace he had. That my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. With my joy in you by the Holy Spirit, that your hearts would be full of joy and that you would be as joyful and as happy as could possibly be because of my joy in you by you keeping my commandments and me giving you the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is, can we get the first two maybe out of a list of nine? Love and joy is the fruit of the Spirit. This is all comfort. These men needed comfort. They were scared. They were troubled. And Jesus is comforting them with the high comfort of heaven. If you'll keep my commandment, listen, my father's loved me. I've loved you. Just stay there and enjoy my love of you. Keep my commandments. And these things I'm telling you is because I want you to be full of joy. I want you to have my joy in you through the Holy Spirit. And I want it to blossom into your own joy flowing out of you by the Spirit. And that's what we have in verse 11. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you. Could it be taken away? Absolutely. How can the joy of Christ be taken out of our lives by grieving the Holy Spirit? That it might remain in you and that your joy might be full. That you could have the greatest, happiest, most fulfilling life possible even though they're beating you, despising you, mocking you, persecuting you from city to city. And it was achieved. It was achieved. You read the Apostle Paul. The man was abused wherever he went, and yet was there anyone that was happier from what we can read in the Bible than the Apostle Paul, rejoicing in God his Savior and Jesus Christ his Lord, looking forward to dying, being willing to die every day, You know what he had to say one time? I die daily. He was constantly under the threat of death, and yet he was happy. It's a shame that we have a predisposition or tendency to understate God's joy in us. Do you know that God delighted in David? Or do you only know that David delighted in God? Do you know both sides of that? God delighted in David. Look at Zephaniah. Can you find a little book toward the end of your Old Testament? I know it's small. And I know you probably haven't memorized it nor quizzed over it recently. But Zephaniah chapter 3, let me share another verse with you. There's lots of verses about God delighting in his people and God setting his love on his people and God having joy in his people. You can bring God joy and he will fill your heart with his joy and your joy will be full. That's what John 15, 11 is about. Zephaniah 3. Look at verse 17. The Lord thy God. Is that all capitals in your Bible? Is that Jehovah? Jehovah of the Bible. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. Do we agree with that about Jehovah? That he's mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Now is that pretty joyful? Is that... did? 
did the writer of the Bible, which uh, the author of the Bible is the Holy Ghost, Zephaniah, the prophet, wrote this. Did he get in there that God Jehovah is mighty? He got that in there to remind you we're talking about the same God, but notice this God. He's rejoicing over you with singing. He's so happy with you, he's singing about you. That's impossible. Well, I believe the Bible. And if he can sing about Old Testament Israel, he can certainly sing about us. They were a stubborn, stiff-necked people and didn't give him his due. All you have to do is read these prophets around them. But look at those words. From the middle of the verse, he will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Okay, back to John 15. It's a, it's a shame that people don't know that about God. John 15, verses 9 through 11, we've covered. I hope well enough for your understanding and your excitement to think of those 11 having such encouragement given to them. These things have I spoken unto you. Men, the reason I'm talking to you the way that I am is that I want my joy in you and I want my joy to stay in you and I want to constantly be joyful in you and I want your joy to be full. Does that sound like a terrible ministry, men? No, Lord. What else do you want to say? Okay, I have a few more things. Verse 12, this is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. So first of all, stay in the love I've had for you so that you can enjoy what we've enjoyed for three and a half years. The way the Father's loved me and I've loved you, stay in it, keep my commandments, abide in my love. I'm going to keep right on loving you. I want your joy to be full. Now, I do have a command for you guys on how you need to get along with each other. I've been talking about from heaven down, God to Jesus to you. Joy down, my joy in you. Now it's among yourselves, you need to love each other. That love that God's had with me, that I've had with you, and that I want you to stay in and continue to enjoy it, you need to have love as well for each other. So we have verse 12. This is my commandment. When we hear those words from the blessed and only potentate, it ought to get our attention. Right. He doesn't say, this is, this is one of my commandments. This is my commandment. This is the stressor of my religion. This is the necessity of your ministry. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. God's loved me, and I've loved you. Bask in that love. God has loved me, and I've loved you. Show that same love to others. Do you see him transitioning and developing the thought of love? The love that has come down from heaven, you now show horizontally toward one another. This is my commandment. I have preached on this so many times. Love is the agent that binds and comforts with God and men and between men also. Wow, it's a, it's a fantastic thing. When Jesus states, this is my commandment, all men ought to sit up and take notice. He's the great redeemer of all men with an easy yoke. All men should crave his rules for their lives. In him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, so his rules are best. And this is his rule. This is how you maximize relationships. Love one another. It is an individual. It, it is an individual from one to another individual. 
It is not a gob of love. It is not a concept of love. It is individual affection and interest in preferring another person more important than yourself and investing in them to make them better in the sight of God. One-on-one, one-to-one, one-another. That reciprocal pronoun is a fantastic thing in our language. And it's right here used by the Lord Jesus Christ again. And of course, it's used by the apostles again and again, by Paul and by Peter and then by John. Rightly understood, if they loved each other the way they were supposed to, it would eliminate any differences on an individual basis. There would be no differences. Rightly understood, it would obligate sacrificial help for any apostle needing it. If an apostle needed some help, another apostle would be there for them. And they were. Did the apostles in Judea need Paul to write Hebrews? Oh, yes. No one had been taught like Paul, and Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Had, J- had James and John been taught anything about the Old Testament law? Not really. What did they do for a living? What did Paul do for a living? Learn the Old Testament. From a doctor of the law that was highly regarded by the Jews, so he wrote Hebrews. Did the Apostle Paul need help with the Jews that were in his churches across the Mediterranean Sea? I hope you have a memory. That's why Peter wrote First and Second Peter. What did he call Paul in that epistle for those Jews that would like to hear it from a Jew? Our beloved brother Paul. It's just beautiful. Love one another. This is my commandment. You know, you could go look up an outline called One Another Duties. You could look up an outline called Love is the Greatest. As I have loved you, Jesus closes out verse 12. As I have loved you. Men, will you love each other like I've loved you? And then he tells them what he really has in mind, which they hadn't really grasped yet, but which within 24 hours they would know very clearly. And that is he died for them. So we have verse 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. They wouldn't really understand it yet, but they would understand it within 24 hours, that Jesus died on the cross for them. This, verse 13, explains the last part of verse 12, as I have loved you. The focus being on sacrificial use of your life for the benefit of another. Sacrificial use of your life for the benefit of another. Verse, I'm going to deal with 13 moment in a little while. Verse 14, ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Notice he called them his friends in verse 12, 13, and he says in verse 14, ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Is verse 14 got anything to do with eternal life? No. You'll be my friends in the great day of judgment if you keep my commandments. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about fellowship. Fellowship and unity and peace and having his love and joy in them. We can, have, we can maintain our friendly relationship if you'll keep my commandments. Keep walking in my ways. Be a committed disciple. I'll be with you. I'll treat you like a friend. I'm going to lay down my life for my friends. And you're my friends if you keep my commandments. It's, it's obedience for fellowship. It's discipleship for friendship. Totally fair. Totally beautiful. Verse 15, henceforth, from now on, I call you not servants. 
for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. There's management wisdom in here, and it's in the outline, but I'm not going to waste my time on it, and I hope that anybody can see that, that a man in charge doesn't tell everyone everything that he's doing. Husbands don't tell their wives everything that they're doing. Fathers don't tell their children everything that they're doing. Mothers don't have to tell their children everything that they're doing. That's why they're mothers. Jesus is Lord of all. Henceforth, I call you not servants. I'm not going to call you servants. Right now, for the sake of my illustration, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. And the Gospel of John has revealed that more than the other three Gospels combined is the amount of information and the knowledge and awareness and the relationship that Jesus had with God the Father. He had conveyed that to the apostles. Remember chapter 5? Some of you love chapter 5. And how much Jesus explained about his relationship with the Father in John 5 after healing the man at the pool of Bethesda. I'm going to call you friends from now on because you're my friends. You know, he tells them this three hours, three hours later, he's in handcuffs. You understand? And then, then they're going to see the fulfillment of verse 13. No, no greater love than laying down your life. They're going to see it. And he's just called his friends. You know, though they were scared out of their wits, there when Jesus was arrested, they saw him die. He called us friends and he told us he was going to do it for us as friends. Right. Right, right here. Minutes before he did it for them. I hope you can appreciate and love what Jesus Christ shared with his apostles. No greater love. Hath no, a man than this, and a man would lay down his life for his friends, and you're my friends if you keep my commandments. What is interesting in reading the Bible is when these friends of Jesus, how many times did Paul open up an epistle? Paul, a friend of Jesus, to the church at Ephesus. How many? None. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. If Jesus wants to call us friends... Thank you, Lord, but I'm your servant. Can you understand that? That's how the apostles did it. They never called themselves the friends of Jesus. They called themselves the servants of Jesus over and over and over again. And so that's verse 15. From now on, I'm not going to call you servants. I want you to see in just a few hours that I'm going to fulfill verse 13 and lay down my life for you as my friends. You're my friends if you keep my commandments. I've told you everything the Father's given me. So that's what friends do. Friends talk. Friends communicate. I mentioned this verse when I was preaching on marital speech. Husbands and wives talk to each other. They communicate. There is not love where there isn't complete communication. The number of times, the number of situations where a father or a husband, excuse me, a husband needs to retain something for his own management of a marriage is so slim and none, it should be ignored and forgotten as a point right now. Because this verse is teaching that true love conveys, communicates, and tells what you're thinking, what you're doing, what you're afraid of, what you love, what you hope to do, because that's all that Jesus told them, and that's how he defined friendship. And I hope that you husbands and wives are at least friends. Verse 16, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. Remember, guys, you didn't pick me. You're wondering, could you really be a friend 
of the one that God, you've heard God thunder from heaven about? Can you really be a friend of the one that calmed a storm at sea with a few words? Can you really be the friend of someone that multiplied a lad's lunch to feed a multitude with much left over? Is that really possible? Men, I want to remind you of something. You didn't pick me as a friend. I picked you as my friend. Is that how we started this morning, brother? Okay. Is that how we started this morning, brethren? Can you see its role right here in this context of them walking along? He just called us, he just called us friends. He said something about laying down his life for us. How can we be his friends? How can we be his friends? I've told you everything that the Father's told me. Haven't I been telling you everything that the Father's told me? Yes. Maybe we are friends. Remember, you didn't pick me for your friend. I wasn't walking along the Sea of Galilee, and you laid down your nets, jumped off your ships, and ran over to me and said, Will you be my friend? I picked you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. You're going to have fruitful ministries. You're going to turn the world upside down. You come from very ignominious uh, uh, circumstances up there at the Sea of Galilee, but you're going to be great. And that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. I've chosen you, I've ordained you, and when you pray, my Father is going to do it because you pray in my name, and I'm his son, and I'm your friend. It's just powerful and weighty. It's the personal intimacy of Jesus Christ with the apostles, and that personal intimacy of Jesus Christ is ours, even to a greater degree because we have him by his spirit and the father by the spirit in us, abiding with us. He was about to leave them. They were comforted by his physical presence, but let's be comforted by his spiritual presence, which is purely divine. The Holy Spirit in us is not the spirit man, like Jesus was the God man. The spirit in us is God in us. This is so personal. And that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. I've picked you as my friends. I've chosen you. When you pray, listen, brethren, Acts 4, when they prayed, what happened? Did the place shake? Do you want to know that they used some unique language in that prayer? They used it twice. Because here, Jesus had told them, Whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name. Do you know how they prayed? Another trip? I know, I heard you, I heard you. Just having fun with you. In the name of thy holy child, Jesus. In the name of thy holy child, Jesus. It's a prayer this long, and twice they say in the name of thy holy child, Jesus. And the place was shaken. Pray in the name of the holy child, Jesus. We're not thinking of him being in a manger. We're thinking of him being the child of God, the son of God, in the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Verse 17, these things I command you, that ye love one another. All these things that I've just mentioned from verse 12 down, especially, verse 12 down, these things I command you, that ye love one another. These things that I've just said to you, they result in that command I gave you in verse 12, love one another. These things that I've told you, keep my commandments. Love one another. 
You're my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Pray. Trust me. And these things I'm commanding you that you love one another. It all keeps leading back to this one thrust that he had to have accomplished before he died that they were going to love one another. And so we have the section, verses 9 through 17. Jesus, on the road to Bethany. And these things have to abide in me, abide, continue in my, in my love, keep my commandments, and love one another. And these things I'm commanding you, but it all comes back to one thing that is really necessary because I'm leaving and it's going to be you 11 and it could fall into total dysfunction if you don't love one another, that ye love one another. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word and may it have an effect on us that we will understand the personal intimacy that the apostles could have with Jesus Christ and that we can have with Jesus Christ and that his commandment, the mark of his religion, is loving one another in the way that he loved us. He loved us by laying down his life for us. We should be willing to lay down our lives for one another.